Hello, and welcome to the Brazil Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nick Zimmer. In this latest episode, we will discuss the environmental state of play in the Brazilian Amazon and how the outcome of Brazil's presidential election in October will impact environmental policy and conservation efforts moving forward. With me to unpack this question and much more is my friend and colleague, Nathalie Understell. Nathalie is the president of the policy think tank Tanaloa, a member of the UN Green Climate Fund accreditation panel the former head of sustainable development policy in the office of the Brazilian presidency, and also a former negotiator for Brazil at the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. We hope you enjoy today's episode and join us again soon. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. Such a pleasure to join you at the Brazil Institute podcast. Yeah, very, very excited about this conversation today. Excellent. Well, before we fully jump in, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you first, or rather, I'd like our audience to learn a little bit more about, about you first, since I am fortunate enough to already consider you a friend. But just very curious, how did you first get involved in environmental policy, multilateral climate diplomacy? How did you develop such a strong connection to these issues? And, and what brought you to, to the Amazon through, through your work? Thank you for the question. Well, um... It was not a linear path. I didn't study any uh, any courses like biology or anthropology. I was actually doing my undergrad at the business school <laughs> in Sao Paulo. And uh, this very same school um, had a very uh, ambitious program and, uh, and prize uh, which awarded good practices, good policies, um, in, in, in different areas uh, in Brazil, good public policies. And I was invited to, as an 18 years old um, kid, I would say, <laughs> to join a small team of students that would go to Amapá in the northern tip of Brazil and update actually the, the, the information of this program around the successful uh, good practices, best practices, best policies that uh, were there. So there I went. Um, to be very frank with you, um, I was not invited directly. I heard that there were some people going and I said, look, I don't know you, but I'm going with you. <laughs> and there I went. So I spent a month in uh, 2002, I think, um, there. And that, that was the first time that I visited the Amazon. I'm actually originally from the south of Brazil. And I got really enchanted and I got in love uh, with the region. And also I came to um, I came to discover it or to learn about it uh, from uh, a positive um, standpoint, right? I saw a lot of projects and policies that were working from the health to the education sector. And I thought, well, if we can make development to say so work here, we can do anywhere. Uh, so I got back to school and I, I completely changed my uh, studies uh, to public policy. And and yeah, and then my first work was already in the Amazonas estate. So my family was not very happy. I thought they, they thought about a career, I don't know, maybe in, in a multinational or in the banking sector. But there I went working with indigenous peoples in the border of Colombia, Brazil and Venezuela. <laughs> 
And from that initial experience, I, I ended up, uh, got deeply involved with uh, policymaking in the region and connected to the, the international cooperation, to the negotiations, uh, because everything is and it, it was already intertwined. So, yeah, it's a little bit complex, uh, but a very happy story, I would say. So it's always fascinating to hear about about our colleagues' paths, and, and thank you for for sharing. So let's dig right in. Um, over the past several years, it's become very commonplace to read in uh, international headlines, really across the world, um, about record breaking rates of of deforestation uh, in the Brazilian Amazon and the the larger Amazon basin. Also, a, a lot of analysis on coverage on, on what these recent declines could mean for the future of the, of the global climate change fight moving forward uh, beyond uh, just Brazil or, or, or the Americas. You, you know, for example, just to ground our conversation a little bit, uh, there is a lot of data out there. But just to take one example, recent numbers from Brazil's National Institute for Space Research, which is one of the primary uh, monitoring actors on the ground in, in the Brazilian Amazon. Um, its data came out recently and shows that deforestation rates in the first six months of this year broke records for the fourth year in a row. Um, and before getting into some of what's happening most recently, I'd like to take a bit of a step back, uh, roughly to when you first went to the Amazon as a, as a young 18-year-old uh, professional. Um, you know, in broad strokes, the the word, uh, the overlay, so to speak, is that there was a lot of progress, real progress that was made at the beginning uh, of this century. Uh, for several years, it was sustained progress. But over the past decade or so, roughly, uh, we, we've seen that the destruction, uh, deforestation and the like has has begun to increase. And I do think it's important to note that this is a trend that predates the, the Bolsonaro government. And so my question to you to kick off our conversation really is, what is the bigger story of the state of the Amazon, the Brazilian Amazon anyway, uh, over the past few decades? What explains the broader seesaw uh, in results? Sort of in broad terms, what are the key drivers of the problems on the ground and what have been the most effective solutions to date in your experience? Nick, let's go back to the 70s then, um, because around 75 uh, in the Amazon region, less than 1% of the whole territory had uh, been deforested. And actually, as you mentioned, we have been seeing rampant deforestation, especially after 2013. Uh, and the cumulative effect of that is that nowadays um, there are estimates that we uh, lost already 20% of this uh, forests. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a jump, <laughs> one that occurred during our lifetime, right? And uh, we lost nearly twice the size of Germany already. So a big, big, big uh, area. Right. And uh, what is interesting also to note from the outset uh, is that 
it's not only that uh, we are, you know, we are losing forests and that's okay. We know now that the cumulative effect of that in the case of the Amazon is one that if, for instance, the, the forest crosses a, a tipping point of 25% of cumulative deforestation, uh, it may enter a process of dieback uh, that can release, you know, a decade of global emissions and, of course, turn the forest into a different ecosystem. So it's for for a long time, I should say, I think Brazilians and, and people that were um, in the Amazon, they thought that conquering nature was okay. And that was actually part of the mindset, right? Uh, I remember uh, hearing from... So from from some anthropologists that in the 80s, for instance, uh, it was quite normal to hear uh, from, you know, average Brazilians that, oh, we don't have indigenous peoples anymore, as if the indigenous peoples uh, should have by then uh, disappeared. It would be, you know, an externality <laughs> of development, uh, which is absolutely crazy, right, to think about it um, nowadays. But this, um, this uh, conquest, uh, conquering or exploration uh, thing uh, was really in the DNA uh, of uh, of people at that time. And I think it, things started changing in the 80s as well, in the late 80s, for two good reasons. One was that um, science became, you know, a key element. So when you talk about, or when I talk about knowing that we are losing forests, is because in 88, uh, Brazil started uh, monitoring uh, forests using satellite images, right? So that's why we have the, you know, the series. And scientists here also started to go into the territories and collect and, you know, um, used information about indigenous lands and everything else. So we started to look at us in a different fashion and look at the Amazon as something that was really us. And the second thing was that all of this has also um, supported um, the process of crafting a new, a new constitution in 1988 as well. And there... Uh, environmental and indigenous rights were recognized. So we kind of, you know, got science and uh, rights together. And that, I think, changed the, the balance uh, of forces at play. And since then, there were different, you know, uh, times when Brazil proved that we could have evidence-based policies in place and that would help us to really uh, we like to use the word in Portuguese, uh, amansar. It's really, you know, kind of, <laughs> um, I don't even know how to translate this word. It's very Brazilian, but in a way it's to tame, right? To tame deforestation and to tame this uh, impetus to destroy. So we had one experience in the early 2000s, which was to eliminate the illegal logging within the mahogany trade. That was, you know, the first time we did it. And then in the 2000s, as you said, uh, there was this boom of commodities. Brazil was growing super fastly because of that. And still it was possible to really do this, to, to you know, through rule of law, uh, drive this uh, successful decline uh, in deforestation. So we control it. And we got to a 80% reduction in 2012. So 
good work. Um, it was great. There were various reasons why, why that worked, including, you know, um, looking at lands uh, as um, looking at the territories, not only as lands, but areas that you need to to think about and to plan and, and to think about. So a lot of protected areas were created, so on and so forth. But uh, for, for most, I think there was the suite, you know, of instruments of, and governance that was created and that make it, uh, make it happen. But also, as you said, it was not enough because deforestation, you know, it can come, it can come back every year, every you know, dry season, if you don't really have the right incentives in place. And that's why we, uh, once again, are having to deal with rampant uh, rates. Um, and, well, I, I hoped that we wouldn't get to where we are now, but the situation is, it is what it is, and we have to to now leapfrog to something uh, different in the near future. If We don't want to see, you know, the, the, the Amazon uh, die back. Natalie, thank you for taking us through uh, really just a fascinating overview of the broader context of how this is, has developed really over over modern Brazil. I think just, you know, fascinating to, to hear and it's just really helpful grounding for folks who maybe are coming to the issue, especially uh, in countries outside of Brazil. Uh, obviously aware of the Amazon, but, you know, not nearly as fluent in the ins and outs of of, of what's happening on the ground as, as someone such as yourself. Uh, to ground the conversation, I think, one level further, let's turn maybe to the current government uh, and their policies uh, in this space, including the ones that they inherited or, or, or did, didn't touch, because I, I still think it's important to understand from a government policy standpoint what's contributed to gains to the extent that there are gains uh, and what's really contributing to either over the broader period of deterioration or in the more recent uh, couple of years. So again, the Bolsonaro government has been heavily criticized for its environmental track record. Uh, And so maybe we can start with what are the key drivers of deforestation and degradation in the Amazon? And how has the Bolsonaro presidency aggregated those problems? Thank you, Nick. Um, as you said, there were some uh, factors that um, were inherited by the current government. And one which I think it's particularly important is uh, the issue of uh, land tenure, or better saying, the lack of information about land in Brazil. A very good friend of mine, the researcher uh, Brenda Brito from Amazon, which is a leading think tank um, based in Belém, in the Amazon, she uh, has uh, came up with this uh, absurd and <laughs> concerning number that 143 million hectares of uh, lands in the Amazon, uh, they uh, we we had no information about. So they are either not allocated to any, you know, um, that are no property rights, or we don't really know what's going on. And these are the areas where forty percent of deforestation uh, has happened in the recent past. 
And uh, just to give you a notion, this 143 million hectares are more or less three times the size of Norway's territory. <laughs> Um, so it's a big thing. Um, so this is already, this is something that has been there, you know, for a while. But the issue with this particular uh, government now, with Bolsonaro, is that um, instead of, you know, um, freezing <laughs> this stock of lands, which are, which can be grabbed, which can be, you know, invaded illegally and, or, you know, or at least if you're not going to not do anything, you can do something about it, right? Establish the right policies, the right incentives. What we've been seeing, and which is absolutely concerning, is that there is a push for um, illegal occupation and illegal activities. And this thing comes directly straight from the presidential leadership. So Bolsonaro has been absolutely like clear in his messages, in his discourse, um, in terms of, you know, um, supporting predatory activities, especially in these territories, which are, you know, public lands that uh, should be allocated or, or sold, whatever. Uh, so we've been hearing like, it, and there were many occasions, uh, many, many, many occasions in this almost four years where we heard uh, the president, you know, giving this stimulus as if it's a soft license for land grabbing and also for deforestation, uh, as well as illegal gold mining, right? And um, just to give you a few numbers, which I think are uh, striking, um, in the first year of Bolsonaro's government, the area of illegal mining doubled its size in the Amazon. And uh, this came with a lot of violence, okay? Um, uh, nowadays, if the legal Amazon, uh, the area, the Brazilian Amazon, uh, if it were a country, it would now have the fourth highest homicide rate in the world, just behind El Salvador, Venezuela and Honduras. So we are talking about, you know, this stimulus with real consequences to the people in the region. And finally, just to cite another thing, uh, there is there was a there was this study by uh, Instituto Socioambiental, which is a quite traditional organization here, uh, where they uh, they they found evidence that in the places that were visited by Bolsonaro in the Amazon region, there was an increase in environmental crimes. So there is some sort of correlation relation uh, there. So, you know, um, these are just a few of the issues that I, I can comment, but um, just to give you a glimpse of the first and foremost issue that we need to change in the coming months and years, which is the presidential leadership, because unless there is a change in the signal given, it's very hard to make the private sector or even the governors in the region, you know, take a different direction. It's too powerful, right? So this the discourse is really a powerful tool. But um, then uh, this guidance from the president, of course, has a lot of a lot of um, it unfolds uh, within the government, right? And what we saw, um, what we we see, actually, is that uh, the the 
environmental policies, they were ground to a halt in this uh, past three years. And um, the apparatus to control deforestation and environmental crimes, it has been paralyzed. And by this paralysis, you know, when we were not sending the right people to the ground to, to check deforestation or to counter environmental crimes, uh, means that those who are there and that want to take advantage of natural resources or net or public lands, uh, they are being benefited. So the risk for them is too low. They are they know they are not going to be cogged uh, by the state. And if they are, uh, even then, it's not clear uh, that they are going to be punished. So it's uh, really a, a a state of um, not having the rule of law, and that's uh, what it what explains why we have this um, rampant uh, deforestation again. Uh, in my point of view, so Natalie, we'll, we're going to talk further about presidential leadership in Brazil and and the upcoming election uh, in October in just a moment. And not to minimize at all the the importance of the various branches of the executive uh, federal government uh, operating uh, on these issues, the president and the executive branches is not the only important actor uh, in this space, right? And so I'm curious about the Brazilian Congress's role in this. Could you give us a sense, for example, of various legislative efforts uh, to either facilitate or protect against Bolsonaro's environmental agenda? And also, you're a civil society leader. You you run a think tank. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the role of local civil society and, of course, the people who have lived uh, in the Brazilian Amazon for, for the, the longest, its most traditional inhabitants. Uh, residents of, of you know quilombo communities, indigenous communities. What is the role there? Thank you, Nick. Look, um, the Brazilian Congress has kind of uh, it took a break from being the villain of the Amazon in these past years. In the sense that normally, you know, the problems and all the pressure from different lobbies and special interest groups they would be directed at the you know at the congressman and congresswoman. Um, and actually, the agenda for legislative change, it didn't advance much in these past years. There was a lot of resistance uh, and there was a lot of leadership, too. I think it's important to mention that the first two years uh, of this cycle, this political cycle, we, ha- we saw uh, the leadership of the, the Speaker of the House, which... Uh, established like as a principle that uh, no project that could harm uh, the environment uh, would, you know, pass, would go through, would, would be put to a vote if there was no consensus. And that's the reason why, you know, a lot of proposals that weren't uh, that good, they were just stopped. So I actually saw a lot of uh, leadership including from the indigenous uh, congresswoman Joanna Pichana there in, in the sense that during the pandemic with everything that was happening um, with everybody here, you know, in terms of healthcare, they were also watching uh, over people in the Amazon. 
uh, watching, you know, the illegal gold miners that were going to, to the territories and not only taking the gold away, but also contaminating people. So there was a lot of good actions there. Uh, but um, yes, there are still uh, difficulties. And I think it's really, really uh, critical, the role of what we call here the Centrão, <laughs> you may know that, which is this very large group of uh, Congress people uh, which are not necessarily aligned with climate or environmental uh, agendas. And um, they, especially in the past one year and a half, they've been more uh, flexible and they've been, you know, uh, creating um, creating instability around these issues uh, once again. They're going to be uh, seeking re-election now, so it's very probable that the next uh, Congress will have to will have the same issues. We'll have to go again against the same proposals. And one of the most uh, interesting ones uh, that I just need to highlight here is precisely the one on land grabbing. That our proposals currently, uh, which are favoring, you know, these incentives for land grabbing. I won't uh, bother you with the details, but um, just to some in, in short, uh, these are proposals that try to provide like uh, um, an amnesty to those who have invaded public lands recently. So remind, remember the 143 million hectares there, you know, people that are invading, they're seeking some sort of um, some sort of uh, pardon, <laughs> official pardon. And the fact that you have proposals being tabled in the Congress around this issue is already a signal for people on the ground doing this kind of stuff. You know, they when they see that there's someone uh, proposing something like that, they feel authorized. So in the same fashion that we see, we, we hear the president, uh, Bolsonaro, Kind of stimulating people to to do that. It's the same with those kind of proposals. So uh, that's why. And, and let me just finish by saying that one of the most critical uh, roles of civil society uh, here is precisely to uh, watchdog <laughs> the Congress and watchdog this kind of you know uh, incentives that are expectations that are being created uh, by by this type of uh, negotiations and. Just want to highlight another thing, which I think it's really important. In these past years, I think civil society in Brazil come, came to realize that democracy and climate change are uh, non uh, they, they are inseparable issues. We cannot, you know, have great tar climate targets and, you know, say abroad that we are going to zero deforestation here if our democracy is not standing. So it's been a beautiful, actually, work uh, that that has been happening here in terms of trying to, you know, um, to strengthen democracy while we we try to save the Amazon. Um, so and, and for I'm sure that this is going to continue for the years to come. No small task. You will be busy for decades to come, it sounds like. Not to leave. <laughs> uh, well, it, speaking about democracy, Brazil's presidential election is, is, is coming up uh, rapidly in, in early October. You've already spoken about this a bit um, in terms of how important presidential guidance is, the, the tone that is set from the top, as well as the goodwill that's required from the presidential palace 
to authorize and in fact mandate that all of the different federal organs that are involved in monitoring and enforcement uh, do their job. But still, uh, I'd like to hear from you on just how important the result of the election will be for the Amazon. And what more specifically, it looks like we're heading, it's becoming more and more likely that, in fact, uh, we are looking at a a contest between former President Lula and current President uh, Bolsonaro. Uh, So in that case, grounding your argument for the importance of the election, what does Bolsonaro 2.0 look like environmentally? I mean, where might he go from here? And conversely, and as the polls show right now anyway, is much more likely, what does a Lula presidency mean for the Amazon in terms of, of policy initiatives? You know, what could we see in 2023, basically, would be the second part of the, of the question. Look, Nick, I think it's worth exploring these different scenarios now and, and perhaps coming back in a few months to discuss with you once again. <laughs> What happened? Uh, because everything is so uncertain and, and we really don't know, right? But I hope we have a, a happy end or a happy end season one <laughs> of all of the, of all of this. Um, but talking first about the scenario of uh, re-election, uh, which is still possible, although perhaps not probable, but possible. Uh, we... We cannot expect anything different from Bolsonaro in terms of uh, his core strategy. We know that uh, what he really aims is uh, to reset this Brazilian uh, policy apparatus on on environment and climate. And um, this, as this is paralyzed today for all intents and purposes, so we we don't think it's going to change. It's actually just you know going to continue. And perhaps even get um, not only uh, stopped, but uh, most probably, probably I would bet in a very aggressive attempt uh, to change legislation, to really go back to our constitution and uh, make it less environmental friendly, less, you know, climate friendly and less indigenous peoples um, uh, friendly, to, to say the least. Um, and the only thing that I think would perhaps, if possible, temper this or, you know, uh, challenge this is the OECD accession process. So Brazil is undergoing uh, this and um, it just got the roadmap for accession. And those who have looked at it um saw that there's a long list of uh, policy areas that Brazil have to, you know, um, become compatible to. And the longest list is on the environment and and climate, including, you know, aspects of uh, protecting uh, environmental defenders um, and, uh, yeah, really really avoiding uh, things like the murder of uh, Don and Bruno as recently happened and and so on. So I think in that scenario, um, the trend will continue. Uh, Most probably we will see uh, challenges to the the democratic process here as well. And then the OECD, I think, will most probably be our last resort (laughs) 
option in terms of establishing any dialogue around environment issues. Natalie, not to not to interrupt you, but if you'll forgive me, I just want to insert a question there, uh, piggybacking off of your very interesting, relevant point about the OECD. I wonder what your assessment is of whether or not some of the efforts around the world to create traceability mechanisms on illegally deforested wood, for example, or other products that are essential to the well-being uh, of globally significant forests, if if that could potentially also temper uh, some of these policies, if for no other reason than out of sheer market incentives. Though I could also imagine a political argument there that if traceability mechanisms are put into place the EU is already moving forward on this. There's a bill under consideration in the U.S. Senate uh, along these lines. It could potentially take some of the political onus off of the president in that case to go to agribusiness and say, listen, I, this is just, you know, the new standards of the of the game. So, you know, this is something that's out there. There's some activity around it. It would impact Brazil, though it's not specifically focused on Brazil. I'm curious where that factors in your thinking. Absolutely uh, impactful uh, in the sense that uh, the reason why uh, Bolsonaro and, and his um, allies and, and his team is so interested in the OECD, for instance, is that the reasoning is that they think if Brazil accedes to OECD, it will get a stamp you know, uh, of good policies, good practices. And then uh, this will open markets and, and trade and, and investments. Brazil has a quite closed economy, so they really think that's that's something good. But it's uh, contradictory at the same time, right? Because the passport for the OECD requires uh, environmental policies and the control of deforestation. So it's not only about paperwork. They, Brazil is being called to... Uh, called out to show progress in, in doing those things. And I think at the same time, this is what this uh, legislations in the UK, in the US, in the EU, even China is considering, right? Deforest Deforestation-free uh, imports and, and, and so on. I think this is um, this goes in the same direction. And uh, I don't really see the, the private sector uh, being able to to respond to that uh, by itself. Uh, and, and this is just because, like, the data that is needed for, you know, proving that your supply chains are not contaminated by deforestation, they uh, depend on, on, on the government. They are public, they are data, but they're not made public yet, right? So there is a limit to what the private sector can do in that regard. And, and that's why I think the private sector and the government here, they will have to work together. Um, and this is certainly like a one of the most important things that all candidates have to talk and to commit to uh, now in the elections. And let's turn to what the polls indicate is quite a significant favorite in the race, former President Lula, and, and um, what could we expect in terms of his approach to environmental uh, policy should, should he win? Well, in this scenario where we have the opposition uh, winning, uh, even in, in the first 
round <laughs> of elections, which is uh, possible. Um, it, what is very, very interesting about this scenario and about the pre-elections or elections uh, time is that um, in my lifetime, uh, there, will, there was always like one green candidate. In the case of Brazil, oftenly Marina Silva. She was kind of carrying the flag of the environment, of the Amazon, and this is it. And this is the first time that all candidates, including Bolsonaro, they have, they, they have to talk about the Amazon. And they understood that this is no longer like a party issue or, you know, a candidate issue. It's really like what Brazilians and the world is asking them to do. So first, like in the past um, eight months, I, I, spoke, I spoke to different pre-candidates And all of them, um, at least, well, I, I talked to almost all. I, I just didn't speak to Bolsonaro and, and um, minor um, candidates' teams. But all of them were talking about the Amazon and, and about committing to zero deforestation. Can you imagine that? <laughs> It's really political now. And, and I think that's, that's brilliant. And what this uh, possibility of having... Um, this scenario two thing, right? So a, a change, a shift uh, in, in, in government is first uh, not a transition. I don't think that any of the candidates uh, that are in the opposition, if they win, they're not going to do a transition from Bolsonaro. I think they're going to break, you know, there will be a rupture from the current model. And I also hear that they want to disestablish this rationale of, you know, paralyzing the institutions, trying to change the, the, the constitution, so on and so forth. So I hear uh, good things, and I think all of the candidates are uh, already talking about, of course, I would like to see more ambition. I would like to hear more specific commitments. Um, and of course, uh, as I said, I think presidential leadership is critical. So all of them will have to show this from day one. Um, whoever wins. And finally, Natalie, since uh, the Brazil Institute is based in, in Washington and, and, and we have you uh, in beautiful Rio de Janeiro calling in, uh, it would seem um, appropriate to ask you, especially given your experience in the multilateral space, negotiating a lot of these accords, but also as an organizational leader who's regularly interacting with non-Brazilians uh, who work in, in this area. Where does the international community best fit into this equation from your view and based on your experience? Uh, how can outside actors, whether governments, it's a big question, governments, the private sector, um, the advocacy space, How can they actually be constructive, not redundant, not not condescending, but useful? I think, first of all, and overall, uh, we need the international community's eyes um, on this election here. Uh, we really need you. We really need everybody because uh, this can get really ugly. And I hope it doesn't. But there is there are good chances that we're going to see some sort of January 6th 
in the US also happening uh, in Brazil. So I think this is one issue. So we, we're talking about scenarios, um, but foremost, there, there's, you know, one particular risk uh, that is uh, very concerning at the moment. And then I think in terms of uh, bilateral or multilateral uh, partnerships, uh, we will really need to share the costs of uh, protecting the Amazon moving forward with the international community. So uh, we had the Amazon fund in the past. It's been suspended because of, you know, everything that happened during Bolsonaro's um, term. Uh, and once we are, if we are, once we are able to reset or to rezone re work, <laughs> I think um, it will be very much important uh, that international players, you know, show support. And, and by that, I mean, you know, provide resources, invest in Brazil again, if that's, that's possible. Of course, I'm talking about scenario two here. I'm talking about, you know, restoring what we had in the past. And another thing which is particularly critical in, in, in the Amazon is... Um, to uh, to reverse the capacity breaking of the environmental institutions, right? This is critical, and and I think we can get support from the from the U.S., from Europe, from other governments in that regard. So really, like establishing technical cooperation, you know, getting to learn with other countries. I think it will be critical because. It's not only about, you know, pushing the button and everything will come back. <laughs> we'll have to really rebuild these institutions for a new reality, including, um, you know, more crimes, different crimes, more violence going on in the Amazon. So we will have to restore. And I think we, we can count on um, various uh, friends and partners from abroad in that sense. And, for, and, and finally, just to... Uh, trying to conclude, because I think the, the list could be long here uh, or longer. Um, the climate change, the climate diplomacy space is a critical one. And one of the worst things that happened in Brazil in the past years was, was that this government abandoned our climate commitments. They reversed what we had in place. They put something worse. Uh, and once it's possible to, you know, reverse that, to create a new commitment, I think the international community uh, will certainly will have to judge the effort here. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, um, like happened, I think, with Biden when he won, it was not only about, you know, rejoining the Paris Agreement and, and everybody would clap. It's not about that. It's really about restoring credibility. And, and in the case of Brazil, uh, I think we all will be watching to check um, whether Brazil will, uh, you know, do something different and something better and, and really show that it's capable of, you know, re rejoining and perhaps even leading. Natalie, thank you so much. Just, just great stuff. Very, very illuminating. And before we wrap up, uh, and before I profusely thank you one more time, any any final thoughts or messages that you'd like to share with the audience? It's really been great to have you. I think we are 
we are eager to to get to a new place and a new moment with all of this like I think that people in the Amazon emerged uh, stronger <laughs> during this period. We are seeing the indigenous movements, many indigenous candidates will be, you know, uh, running for office now. Uh, we're seeing the women in the region also very empowered. So uh, I'm also... To the extent that I'm concerned about our democracy and I'm concerned about the, the near future in the region, in the Amazon, I am also very enthusiastic about everything, all the energy that is out there, right? And I think it's important that international community perhaps connects with that and, and gets to know the beauty of everything that is uh, is happening and support it because... Uh, if we are able to flip this page uh, of high deforestation, eroding democracy, I think Brazil will shine, and, and people in the Amazon, particularly, are gonna are gonna shine and really help the world to to get to a better place in terms of climate change and any other problems. Well, your energy certainly comes through uh, loud and clear, and and I think ending on that enthusiastic note uh, is is appropriate. Natalie, thank you again for joining us here at the Brazil Institute podcast, and we'd love to have you back uh, after the elections and, and, and to have that policy chat that, that came up today. Thank you again. Thank you, Nick. My pleasure. It's, it's been great. The Brazil Institute podcast is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. To learn more, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org/brazil. Until next time, thanks for listening.